Hi everyone. Before we begin today's show, just a quick reminder that Michael and Us has a lot more content available at patreon.com slash Michael and Us. We post an extra episode there every week alongside bonus content, including, though not limited to interviews that I do in my day job, a recent highlight being my conversation with the author and science fiction writer Cory Doctorow, with whom I discussed Bill Gates. Recent Patreon episodes include one about the film Crumb, about the cartoonist Robert Crumb, and in a fan favorite, we offer our take on the rap musical about the Founding Fathers that's still extremely popular for some reason. You'll also get access to our full archive of three years and well over a hundred episodes worth of Patreon content. So, if you enjoy the free episodes and want to hear more, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash michaelandus. We're very grateful to be able to partner with Jacobin Radio, so please don't miss other great podcasts on the Jacobin Network, like the just-launched Primer, a labor podcast about Amazon hosted by my colleague Alex Press. Now, without further ado, on with this week's free episode of Michael and Us. Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with Luke Savage, uh, sitting across from my good buddy Will Sloan for only the second time uh, now since March 2020. On our recent Patreon episode, our reunion show, uh, we had our first in-person recording since March of 2020, and this is the first time we've done that for uh, one of the free apps, so uh, it's good to be back. Luke is sharing with me some beautiful, uh, what is what is this? This is like whiskey Whiskey barrel-aged red wine, which is something I discovered recently, and it's pretty good. Never had it before. Like it very much. You know, on my way up to your apartment, I was in an elevator with another person for the first time <laughs> in a year and a half, and that was crazy. I actually wasn't quite sure, like, what is proper elevator etiquette right now? Like, am I, should I, should I get on the elevator, or should I wait for another elevator? The rule in in this building is that you can only have two passengers in the elevator at one time. Oh, okay. um, although a lot of people just kind of like there are certain COVID things, you know, you can kind of see the breakdown of certain, uh, you know, certain protocols. I was on a patio the other night. Um, you know, I've just been like a half dozen times to patios since the lockdown kind of started to end here in Toronto. And I noticed that, uh, you know, a lot of people, including myself, if I'm if I'm honest, did not bother to uh, put my mask back on as I was making like the 10 step walk from the like, please wait, you know, please wait here to be seated, you know, to the table where I was seated at. No point. I just want to tell you that I also had a patio meal tonight. I dined at a local establishment called McDonald's, which is next door to your apartment <laughs> building. Do- uh, really doxing me there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, nature is healing because on the corner corners of the internet that I go on people are arguing about Quentin Tarantino again uh, that, w- that would be on film Twitter maybe you've heard of it because Tarantino has a new book out and people are once again relitigating the controversy of his depiction of Bruce Lee in his last film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well as now the accompanying book he's written a, a novel version of the film so people are once again litigating this. Uh, Bruce Lee's daughter has released a statement uh, condemning his comments about Bruce Lee. Tarantino has been on the talk show circuit lately. He's been saying a lot of things. A lot of people have had a lot of opinions about these things. And it just feels like two years ago, you know, it just feels like the pandemic is winding down and now we're just 
picking things back up where they left. Forget two years ago. It sounds like, you know, four or five years ago. Um, what you're, I think what, what, what I'm getting from what you're saying is that uh, the Joe Biden presidency is already a success. Like, <laughs> debates are now, you know, kind of safely contained within these kind of very narrow cultural parameters. And, you know, people aren't getting mad at like health insurance companies anymore. You know, they're, they're getting mad about these like ephemeral Twitter discourses that like come with the dust and are gone with the wind. God, unbelievably bleak. Well, before before we got to the meat of today's show, I did want to talk a little bit about, you know, speaking of the Biden presidency, uh, what's been on my mind this week. I stumbled upon a poll uh, earlier this week, I guess from uh, from late last month. It was, I think, published on the last day of June. It was a poll published by Politico and, and conducted by Morning Consult. And basically, uh, the poll was gauging pu- public opinion around a number of measures that are uh, at least slated to be included in this reconciliation bill um, that the Democrats are going to be pushing alongside the White House's uh, bipartisan bill. Now, okay, can you briefly explain for yeah. stupid people what reconciliation means? So, look, all of this is incredibly boring. And yeah, that is where I was going to next. It's all incredibly boring. And I guess... Um, the only defense of the boring explanation I'm about to offer is that the boring character of all of this is kind of integral to the point I'm making. So basically... So folks, take your iPhone <laughs> and skip ahead uh, 30 <laughs> seconds, 30 seconds, 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I absolutely hate this stuff. I hate writing about it too. I hate writing about congressional like brokerage politics. I don't know. It's so ephemeral. By the time this even goes out, you know, who knows? There could be some new development. But basically where we're at right now, right, is that, you know, Joe Biden initially released all these spending plans with big price tags. You know, the only one of those he got through was the American Rescue Plan, $1.9 trillion in January. This is kind of the only place where the Biden administration has really gone big so far. And, you know, they did it with business support and with um, some Republican votes too. But this is the and, you know, they did it with, with business support. It was it was not a, not hugely controversial. It was actually smaller than the package Trump passed. But this is the kind of data point, this $1.9 trillion that you see cited in this kind of, um, you know, we're still seeing these pieces about, you know, the Rooseveltian ambition of the Biden presidency or whatever. But so kind of where we're at right now is that the administration has spent several weeks or I guess several months figuring out uh, what they want to do with the next stage of their plan, which initially they're pitching it at over $2 trillion. And what's happening now is that there are actually going to be two bills. This is the idea. So there's going to be a bipartisan bill, which I think they're saying it's $1.2 trillion, but a lot of that's just kind of like already announced spending they're shoehorning in. It's it's closer to $600 billion, so considerably smaller than what Biden was uh, proposing. And it's mostly generic uh, investments in bridges and roads and that kind of physical infrastructure. And Biden's been able to attract some Republican votes uh, in the Senate for this. And so initially, the White House's position was that, you know, they kind of said to the progressive wing of the party, like, don't worry, we know this bill doesn't have stuff that you want. It may or may not also have uh, the words asset recycling uh, appearing in various places, which, you know, is just a code word for privatization. That's how they want to pay for it. But the idea is they can also pass a reconciliation bill where they're going to put all these good items that actually like are popular and improve people's lives. They're going to put them in this reconciliation bill. Officially, the position of the Democratic House leadership, or at least last time I checked, is that they're not going to help pass the bipartisan bill through the House unless they can also pass the reconciliation bill. Initially, this was Biden's position as well. He's since backed down on that. He very clearly suggested that he would veto the bipartisan bill if the other bill wasn't allowed to pass as well. And then he backed down on that after like two days of Republican pressure. So it's not really clear where any of this stuff is at. All of this is, as I said, very boring. Why does this dynamic matter? Well, there is a bunch of stuff in the reconciliation bill that's pretty good and that people like me would very much like to see happen. 
There are a number of measures to expand and enhance Medicare, which is, you know, still among the most popular government programs there is, despite decades of attempts to undermine it. These include things like adding dental, vision, and hearing to the program. There are other things like allowing the uh, federal government to negotiate drug prices through Medicare. One of the big ones, um, and one of the ones that the industry uh, hates the most, is uh, lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare to 60. Um, It's currently 65. And so this polling that I mentioned before basically pulled all these items and found out that they're not they're not only resoundingly popular, but they're they're pretty with a few exceptions, they're pretty much resoundingly popular with both Republicans and Democrats. So the, the first thing I mentioned, the idea of um, expanding Medicare to include dental vision and hearing, 89% of Democrats and 70% of Republicans polled uh, support that. Lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare, overall 61% support, 75% of Democrats, 49% of Republicans. There's a pretty big consensus on this and on on a lot of of other things as well. And the reason I guess I'm bringing this up is because, you know, I think that this whole kind of uh, insufferable and, and labyrinthine and confusing brokerage process around this stuff is such kind of an apt metaphor for the way that Beltway deal making uh, works and the way that laws are often made in Congress. I'll just remind everybody a year and a half ago, you know, the kind of horizons within the Democratic Party um, when it came to healthcare policy. You know, there was a debate between basically the Bernie model, which was abolish all private insurance and and create a a national system, a federal system of public health insurance, Medicare for all. Um, And, you know, and then you had the various rival plans. You had people like Kamala Harris, uh, who kind of announced something that they called Medicare for all. It wasn't really Medicare for all. You had other people like Pete Buttigieg, who tried to triangulate it and say, well, Medicare for all who want it. You had Biden with his public option. Basically, that was kind of the horizons you were dealing with. And even the more conservative options did involve what would be pretty major expansions of public health insurance of one kind or another, even if they left room for private options. And so when Bernie lost, obviously, the line became, well, don't worry, you know, you're not going to get Medicare for all, but Biden's going to do the public option. Biden has barely mentioned the public option since being elected president, if if he's mentioned it at all. It it, it was clear a few weeks ago they weren't going to kind of include it in their current legislative push. Um, And so now where we're at is that there are these two bills, one of which is a pretty generic, I mean, it's basically a bill that like a Republican White House would pass. And you have this other bill that has all the important stuff and a lot of the popular stuff around healthcare, climate policy, education, childcare, things like that. And the way, you know, some of this, you know, uh, Bronco, my colleague, pointed out, you know, the way a lot of this stuff, particularly the climate policy stuff is being discussed, it's almost as if these are these kind of like boutique items, like all the stuff that actually does, you know, anything is like an indulgence. And so I feel like this whole thing is such a metaphor for how all of this stuff actually works in practice. All of these incredibly popular items that if you gave them to people, you know, you'd probably be rewarded in the midterms, all that stuff, if it even survives, and like, you know, again, I'll just reiterate, we've climbed down from like, there's going to be a public option to like, yeah, maybe we'll lower the age of, you know, Medicare eligibility by five years or whatever and like expand it a bit or whatever. All that stuff gets put into this like boutique reconciliation bill that in theory the Democrats can pass with 50 votes. But I mean, with the White House kind of backing down on its position about vetoing the the bipartisan bill and many Democratic senators being who they are, I just I don't have high hopes about this bill passing. Um, and this is in spite of its its popularity. And I just feel like this is such an apt metaphor for how the legislative process in Washington unfolds almost independently a lot of the time, just in a way that's insulated from popular opinion. I feel like there's a lot of received wisdom about how the problem with democratic politics is that, you know, politicians just pander. They pander to opinion polls. It's like, well, I, I beg to differ, especially when it comes to something like healthcare. 
Boy, I can see why you get really tired of writing about that stuff, because not only is it incredibly boring to try to get all the facts straight, but once you've got it all straight, it's really sad. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Um, You know, one of the things I was looking into was um, the so-called Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, which has the incredibly awkward, I still haven't mastered it when I type it out, the acronym P-A-H-C-F. It's an acronym that's pretty difficult to master for some reason. Pacha. Pop, pop, pop. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so this group, uh, which, you know, bombarded uh, Democratic primary voters with ads um, attacking Medicare for all and also recently helped to defeat a kind of state level public option in Colorado through a you know historic you know, r- record amount of uh, lobbying and spending. You know, having defeated that stuff, they're now taking aim at this idea of lowering the age of Medicare eligibility, you know, expanding Medicare. And, you know, it's amazing. Like, nobody has ever heard of this group, right? It's like, maybe you've heard of it if you've, like, you know, if you write about politics, if you read Politico, whatever, you might have heard of it. If you're, if you're like, some kind of gilded political consultant that lives in the Beltway, um, you know, and has, like, a Maryland area code, maybe you've heard of it. But, like, nobody's heard of this group. I went to their uh, Facebook and Twitter feeds absolutely incredible so this group which is currently in the midst of a seven-figure ad buy and you know this group is just, it's a, basically a front for like various interests in the healthcare and, and pharma sectors although it also you know it has deep ties to the democratic party as well this group is in the midst of a seven-figure ad buy there's a lot about its inner workings that are kind of inscrutable but an example of kind of the scale at which we're operating here the intercept had a story in april um, by lee fong about how uh, cvs health the uh, corporate leviathan Uh, made a single donation of $5 million. So like a single donation is $5 million. That's kind of the scale of this. That's how that's how big this effort to uh, to defeat expansions in public health insurance really is. You go to their Facebook page, right? Uh, They've got uh, less than 3500 followers on Facebook. The posts have literally no engagement. Okay, I'll I'll go follow them. I feel a bit bad about that. (laughs) Posts have literally no engagements. When they do have comments, like there's like no likes, like maybe one sometimes, like basically no likes, no shares. When there are comments, it's usually people who are just like, you know, fuck you, blood sucking private insurance companies (laughs) or whatever. Uh, you know, on Twitter, they have 25,000 followers, which I guess is like a little better. Again, they get no engagements. And I feel like this is such a perfect metaphor for how the, the sausage gets made. You have this group, which is able to just shell out, you know, millions of dollars. Groups like this and the vast kind of networks of dark money, the vast networks of donors are the reason why, you know, we can't have nice things. Trying to do any kind of transformative lawmaking means that groups like this will flood your opponents like war chests. Um, with unfathomable, you know, like they have a bottomless well of cash at their disposal. They have a bottomless well of cash for lobbying, for advertising, all this kind of stuff. Now, the Democratic Party could still stand against them if it was willing to pursue, you know, a kind of Bernie Sanders style small donor strategy and just decide, well, we don't actually care about the influence of money like this. But obviously, that's not where the Democratic leadership is at. That's not the kind of politicking they want to do. So that's how you go in the span of about a year and a half from like the Overton window within the Democratic Party being full socialized medicine or some kind of public plan that's going to try to cover, you know, 98% of people that they can opt into to, well, you're not going to have socialized medicine, but you might have this public plan to, well, don't worry, we're going to expand Medicare uh, eligibility to, well, we're going to put that into this kind of boutique bill that is like, you know, uh, we're going to try to subject to our razor thin majority uh, in the Senate. And uh, yeah, maybe you'll get it. But 
but probably not. And I just think it's so funny that groups like this that are able to exert this kind of influence, it's like they have literally zero organic engagement. There's no grassroots buy-in for the, for this stuff. And the point is, uh, unfortunately, there doesn't need to be. What, what are your plans when this movie's all over? What are you going to be doing? I shouldn't make movies anymore. Should go to a lunatic asylum <laughs> right away. But I don't know. It's... Uh... Very much of it is, is too crazy and too, uh, just not, not what a man should do in his life all the time. And I feel, uh, well, if, even if I get that boat over the mountain and somehow I finish that film, anyone can congratulate me and talk me into finding it marvelous. I, nobody on this earth will convince me to be happy about all that. Not, not until the end of my days. A vision had seized hold of me, like the demented fury of a hound that has sunk its teeth into the leg of a deer carcass, and is shaking and tugging at the downed game so frantically that the hunter gives up trying to calm him. It was the vision of a large steamship scaling a hill under its own steam, working its way up a steep slope in the jungle, while above this natural landscape, which shatters the weak and the strong with equal ferocity, soars the voice of Caruso, silencing all the pain and all the voices of the primeval forest and drowning out all bird song. To be more precise, bird cries, for in this setting, left unfinished and abandoned by God in wrath, the birds do not sing. They shriek in pain, and confused trees tangle with one another like battling titans from horizon to horizon, in a steaming creation still being formed. Fog panting and exhausted, they stand in this unreal world, in unreal misery, and I, like a stanza in a poem written in an unknown foreign tongue, am shaken to the core. Yes, but the steamship didn't actually move itself up that hill, did it? (laughs) Actually, there were a bunch of, like indigenous people who are pulling on pulleys and levers to get the ship up that said that is an awfully beautiful piece of writing and and my my mixed reactions to that kind of get to the core of why i wanted to talk about this week's movie burden of dreams the classic 1982 documentary directed by les blank with maureen gosling about the making of Werner herzog's 1982 classic fitzcarraldo That film will forever be known as the movie in which a steamship was literally dragged over a mountain. Werner Herzog, I'm sure he will need no introduction to many of our listeners, the great German director of Aguirre the Wrath of God, Cobra Verde, Nosferatu the Vampire, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call New Orleans, Grizzly Man, and also co-star of The Mandalorian. (laughs) A cuddly meme, everybody's favorite stern-sounding German-accented man. Fitzcarraldo, which is probably my favorite Herzog movie. I mean, there are ones that I would say are more perfect than it. I think Aguirre, The Wrath of God, and Nosferatu probably win on points. I've only seen Cobra Verde once, but I think the official party line for me is that that's my favorite. Interesting but, choice, because one, one of the less popular Herzog Kinski ones, but, but I agree, it's a great film. And, you know, similarly, a film like Fitzcarraldo and like Aguirre, The Wrath of God for which, by the way, there's a poster right behind me as we're recording. 
I mean, two of these are literally river movies, but all three of them are are films about some kind of absolutely chaotic quest undertaken by a largely unsympathetic character that is trying to realize some obscene and unreal fantasy, often in very difficult conditions. That character in Fitzcarraldo is Brian Sweeney Fitzgerald, played by Klaus Kinski, a half-crazed dreamer who wants to build an opera house in the Amazon. In Fitzcarraldo, we learn that you know, he's had a number of failed ventures behind him. He wanted to, what was it, create a railroad or a, or a rubber factory or something like that in the Amazon. Uh, left a lot of workers behind. So he's constantly hopping from dream to dream. And his latest is to, is to have Caruso come and sing in the Amazon rainforest. And this character was based on a real life person, but significantly the actual person who was based on disassembled his steamship and had it taken piece by piece over the hill and then reassembled. But Kinski's Fitzcarraldo rigs this elaborate system of pulleys and ropes by which the natives are able to haul the ship over the mountain. And this is certainly a film in which art very consciously imitated life. It's a cliche to say that movies are documentaries of their own making, but Fitzcarraldo is very much about what if a mad dreamer or a mad dreamer filmmaker had a ship dragged over a mountain in the middle of the Amazon? Yeah, I mean, it really is a movie about its own, about it. <laughs> itself in some kind of way and this documentary beautifully captures the strange and very difficult process by which it came into being incidentally the passage that i read from uh, is from a book called conquest of the useless which is uh, you know basically Werner herzog's published diaries of the you know his kind of journals around the filming of fitzcarraldo Officially, he says they're not journals, except in a very general sense. He says they might be described instead as, as inner landscapes born of the delirium of the jungle, which is a perfect... That's one way to put it, yeah. And then he yeah. says, but, but, even th- but even that may not be entirely accurate, I'm not sure. So some wonderfully uh, cryptic Herzog words there. But I feel like that does capture the essence of the book. Like I say, Fitzcarraldo is probably my favorite Herzog movie. I think it's got the best Klaus Kinski performance in it. I mean, Klaus Kinski played Mad Men in dozens, hundreds of films, but this is a movie where you get to see all sides of his talent. He can play sweet, he can play insane, he can play naive. I could be wrong, but... It, it's not, uh, it may be the best Kinski performance, but it's not the film on the set of which Kinski was probably at his most deranged, right? That was probably a, it was a Giro where he, where, you know, shots were fired or whatever, and then later he and Herzog disputed who actually wielded the gun, right? Well, I mean, on Aguirre, it's like the, the famous story went around that they held each other at gunpoint or something, but I, I think it was probably more accurate to say that Kinski was planning to walk off and Herzog told him he would kill him, and then <laughs> I don't think an actual gun was wielded but i think i think cobra verde was probably the one i mean the documentary you once showed me about the making of cobra verde where kinski is just like throwing constant tantrums on set and then herzog like so much of that documentary is just herzog looking exasperated and and being like like there is no one that i can find to replace kinski's talent (laughs) but then just like fuming over the fact that he can't get kinski to behave for even 30 seconds and you know fitzcarraldo i think contains some of herzog's most indelible images Obviously, the the image of the ship going over the mountain is very arresting. But, you know, the fact that he genuinely was shooting in the middle of the Amazon, no movie has an atmosphere like that movie has. You're reading from his prose, and he really does convey the jungle as this both sensual and also very violent force. 
Yeah, that's right. And, you know, uh, it should be said, you know, the film documents this, you know, he could have made, he could have shot most of this film outside kind of urban areas or kind of within, you know, like, you know, a daily boat ride of, of major urban centers in uh, in South America. But he chose a remote jungle location to film most of it. And he says in Burden of Dreams that the reason he did this was basically because, you know, I can't quite remember exactly what he says, but I mean, he was going for realism and authenticity. He wanted the jungle to have an effect on the crew and on the actors. And, you know, I think as with Agira, so much of what you're seeing, I mean, it is a film, but it also it also is kind of a documentary because these people really are stranded in the jungle. You know, they really are in a very dangerous environment. Um, they really are, you know, like the characters they're playing, engaged in these very dangerous kind of adventures whose conclusions are anything but certain. My belief is that all these dreams are, are yours as well. And the only distinction between me and you is that I can articulate them. And that is what poetry or painting or literature or filmmaking is all about. It's as simple as that. And I, I make films because I have not learned anything else. And I know I can do it to a certain degree. <laughs> and it is my duty because this... Uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves otherwise we would be cows in the field. Herzog was utterly determined to make the film uh, that he wanted to make uh, w without any compromises. And I suppose the, the sort of classic debate around Fitzcarraldo, and I think the reason you probably wanted to discuss it, was, you know, to what extent that was uh, worth it? Or to what extent, uh, you know, something like this as a creative enterprise is justified? Yeah, I definitely do want to talk about that. This podcast, since its inception, has been in part about interrogating things that we loved when we were younger, political things especially. But and, and often finding them wanting, which was not the case here. Yeah, I definitely don't find this movie wanting, but I, I definitely see that the world around this movie has changed. Burden of Dreams and, by extension, Fitzcarraldo depict a kind of directorial, an auteur megalomania that has fallen far out of fashion in recent years. There has been so much discussion in recent years about, you know, the sorts of conditions that directors should create on their sets. People interrogating the notion of, like, how important is, is an artist's vision at the expense of other people's health and safety. And when I was getting really into, you know, serious films, when I was exploring the wild world of international cinema when I was a teenager, you know, seeing Bergman and Fellini and Herzog for the first time, all the great masters, you know, Herzog could not have been a more romantic figure to me and to film culture at large. You know, people would tell stories of his exploits. He was the guy who pulled a fucking steamship over a mountain. And, you know, I still definitely kind of feel that way about him. I'm not, I, I can't fully disown that. I mean, this movie's in my blood. I'm glad Fitzcarraldo and also Burden of Dreams exist. Uh, there's nothing else like them. And yet, I can't look at it with the same wide-eyed uh, wonder that I used to. I do think it is a hashtag problematic <laughs> artifact, you know? <laughs> so a little bit about the production of Fitzcarraldo, which is captured in Burden of Dreams. 
as we mentioned, it was shot deep in the Amazon jungle, hundreds of miles from the nearest town or city. There were tensions throughout shooting. There were several different phases of shooting from 1979 to when the film was eventually completed and released in 1982. Well, there's a whole, there's 40% of the film was made and then discarded because Jason Robarts, uh, who was going to play the original uh, lead, Um, And it was going to be paired alongside Mick Jagger. He got dysentery and then had to leave, go back to Europe and was not able to continue filming. And this character Mick Jagger was going to play, you know, Mick Jagger had to go and record Tattoo You, which is, you know, I I suppose one of the last like one or two half decent Stones albums. It's got Waiting on a Friend, which I still like. He had to leave. And so Herzog just decided to cut that character out entirely. So the, the main character ended up being played by Kinski just doesn't have this sidekick who I think's original name was Wilbur. But somewhere, I guess, this like other cut of like 40% of Fitzcarraldo just like exists. No, it's been destroyed. Herzog Herzog famously destroys all his outtakes. So the three, (laughs) like the three short scenes that we see in Burden of Dreams are all that exist of the bizarro world Fitzcarraldo. Man, I don't, I don't like that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's a shame. That, that, I mean, that in itself seems like kind of an extension of a sort of creative megalomaniac mania which is it's like oddly principled but then like if you're an appreciator of this stuff decades later you you want to have that stuff around i mean i would love to i would pay so much money to see the 40 percent of Fitzcarraldo that has mick jagger and jason robarts in it one thing that we do see of that alternate version is the famous bell tower scene where Fitzcarraldo commandeers the church bell tower and starts banging it and saying we want the opera in Iquitos we want the opera in Iquitos and <laughs> Ebert had a good line where he said that casting Kinski instead of Robards to play Fitzcarraldo was the correct decision in the same way that pulling a real boat over a mountain is better than pulling a fake a fake boat over a model <laughs> mountain, you know? Like you see those scenes together. There's no comparison. But, you know, in the early stages of shooting, there were great socio-political tensions between the indigenous peoples in the Amazon and the Peruvian government. The government had encouraged settlers and colonization. There were business interests that were tearing down huge parts of the Amazon. The indigenous people had no power to stop this. Herzog wanted to use indigenous labor. He got support from some of the tribal councils, but there were great tensions. There were, in fact, there were wars going on between some of the tribes. In 1979, during the first effort to shoot the film, I I understand from doing a little bit of online research that Herzog began constructing his village in the jungle without consulting the tribal council. And so members of the tribe came and burned the village down. And of course, there were debates all through the production of like, how much should the indigenous workers and extras be paid? Herzog was paying more than the going rate. But of course, production dragged on for like nine or 10 months. These people were away from their families for a long time. Very thorny issues, not even getting into the potential danger of having the people pull the ship over the mountain, which is chronicled in the film to some extent. Well, and there's a scene in the movie where you see a, a worker get, I mean, it looks like he's, it looks like he's been killed. Um, although then he just actually gets up and he's pretty much fine. Yeah, because one of the ropes breaks and, and knocks him over. Yeah, it, it's a genuinely terrifying scene. I've seen this movie with an audience and it just like... Yeah. sucks the air out of the room. Well, the, the scene's quite incredible because what Herzog was attempting to film is the moment at which their their pulley system successfully gets the ship moving up the mountain. And so what you see is Klaus Kinski and the other actors, you know, they're celebrating because the, the ship has actually moved. And then you see 
like the pulleys snap and the ship roll back and they're kind of still doing the scene. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty surreal. And in fact, I think some of this is in the actual Fitzcarraldo, that bit of the ship going back. Like he, he used the botched footage. A source of great controversy, but also great confusion are the incidents of death and injury on the set. Not all of them can exactly be blamed on Herzog directly. For example, there was a plane crash that left some people dead. There was a raid by some indigenous peoples on the set that left one or two crew members injured. There was another indigenous extra who stole a canoe and ended up drowning. These things are not exactly Herzog's fault. You know, late in the film, late in Burden of Dreams, we hear him during one of his long monologues lament that people have died realizing his vision. But he doesn't give the context, and he later said in interviews that, you know, that that one out-of-context quote damaged him, damaged his career very severely, especially in Germany. People thought he was a madman, you know, killing people, pulling the boat over the mountain. That said, I mean, the, the debate could be had, like, is it responsible to make a film under these conditions? Is it responsible to film in an environment where incidents like this can happen and, and do happen as a result of a film crew being there? I mean... I don't know. I don't know if I can give a definitive answer to that, but it, but it's more complicated than Herzog would have you believe. Yeah, and just to give a kind of a sense of like the personal megalomania that goes into something like this, there's an interview with Herzog in the book Werner Herzog, A Guide for the Perplexed, which is a series of conversations, very good book, a series of mm-hmm. conversations between him and Paul Cronin. Um, and he's talking about what the genesis of this idea was. And Herzog says, years before I thought of the story, while working on another film and searching for locations, I took a drive along the Brittany coast. At night, I reached a place named Karnak and found myself in a field covered with menhirs, huge prehistoric stone slabs up to 30 feet high and some weighing 600 tons stuck in the ground. There were hundreds of them, parallel rows going on for miles inland across the hills. I thought I was dreaming. I bought a tourist brochure and read that science still had no clear explanation of how eight or ten thousand years ago, these huge blocks were brought overland to this spot and set upright using only Stone Age tools. The brochure suggested it was the work of ancient alien astronauts. This itched me, and I told myself I wasn't going to leave until I had worked out how I, as a Stone Age man with the available tools, simple hemp ropes or leather thongs and levers and ramps, would have moved a men here over a distance of a couple of miles. This is what I came up with. I would need a group of men to dig a series of trenches under the men here. Then I would push hardened oak tree trunks into the trenches and dig away the rest of the earth so the men here would be resting on the trunks. Once this is accomplished, the stone could be moved on these wheels with ropes and levers. The real task ahead would be to construct a ramp, a mile long, almost horizontal, on an almost imperceptible incline. For that, I would need 2,000 disciplined men. The ramp would lead to an artificial mound 20 feet high with a crater dug into it. To move the men here up the ramp would take far fewer men and could be done in only a few days. They would use the levers and primitive pulley system with turnstiles, finally tipping the stone into the prefabricated hole. Once it tilts into the crater with its pointed end down, you basically have an upright men here. And all that needs to be done is to remove the earth, the mound, and the ramp. If Fitzcarraldo had a passport, Karnak would be listed as its place of birth. So, I mean, I think that's pretty incredible. I mean, he just had this kind of random experience in Brittany where he was confronted with, you know, how did, you know, it's, it's kind of like the problem of like, you know, how did they build Stonehenge? You know, he's confronted with basically that problem. And he's like, well, I'm going to figure out how, you know, 10,000 years ago I could 
you know, basically build Stonehenge or, you know, its equivalent in, in Northwestern France. And at some point, you know, this vision kind of gripped him and it attached him, you know, it attached itself to this story. And he decided that he was going to kind of mega maniacally pursue it to the absolute uh, bitter end. It's not really delved into in Burden of Dreams, but it's maybe worth getting into his relationship with Klaus Kinski a little more because, again, when I was a budding film bro back as a teenager, few things more romanticized than the uh, tumultuous love-hate creative partnership between these two men, these two madmen who, who together created great art. Some of the lore of Fitzcarraldo, again, not delved into in Burden of Dreams, is that Kinski was so badly behaved on the set that, according to Herzog, one of the tribe leaders offered to have Kinski killed. And I don't know if that's actually true. Sounds like a bit of a tall tale, but eh, I don't know. Maybe it's true. Given some of the stuff you see in My Best Fiend, which is the Herzog documentary that documents his relationship with Kinski and might even be the best Herzog documentary, to be honest. Some of the stuff you see in that film honestly makes that, you know, it's like, yeah, that could be just like a made up thing, but uh, it could also be entirely true. You know, the thing about My Best Fiend is, I mean, of course I enjoy it, but I'm suspicious of it. I think that it sort of poses as this loving Valentine to his departed collaborator, but I actually think it's ultimately... What it ultimately is, is a canny piece of brand management by Herzog. <laughs> I think Herzog is someone who, you know, especially at that time, his reputation had suffered, having pursued these insane film projects that put life and limb at risk. And this is him saying, no, don't get me wrong. He's the crazy one. And like, he's dead now, so he can't defend himself. Okay, I'm here to tell you he was the crazy one. And I feel like, again, I don't... I sound like I'm doing like trying to cancel Herzog. I feel like you're playing devil's advocate with yourself. Well, that's uh, that is what I'm doing, because like, obviously, I love that these movies exist. But like, how responsible is it to let Klaus Kinski on your set? Like, I feel like my best fiend doesn't reckon with that. There are so many horrifying anecdotes in that film of, yeah, oh, yeah, Kinski like went insane and he started firing a gun and a crew member lost a finger. But, you know, I had to only I could tame the savage beast. You know, I recently watched a documentary about Kinski. Somebody put out a Blu-ray of one of Kinski's final films, which is called Nosferatu in Venice. Not a movie you need to see. <laughs> but it has this incredible documentary of just like people who worked on Kinski's last couple of movies talking about him. And, you know, to a one, they all tell horrifying stories of things that he did on the set, including up to and including sexually assaulting people on the set, sometimes while the camera rolled, like while he was doing love scenes. And I mean, without sounding like the HR manager of cinema, these are the kinds of things I think about now when I watch Fitzcarraldo or Burden of Dreams, or My Best Fiend, for that matter. You know, I've never read the Klaus Kinski autobiography, but I always think of oh, it. Oh, I have. I always think of it, because it's out of print now, for obvious reasons, but I always think of it at the beginning of Before Sunrise, because when Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy first look at each other from across the aisle on a train, I think it's I think he's reading the Klaus Kinski autobiography. And when, when he shows it to her, she doesn't immediately turn away. Yeah, I like that. By the way, if I were saying, like, my top five books... I think I think that book would be on it. It's it's uh, insanity. <laughs> Burden of Dreams captures a lot of remarkable footage. You know, Fitzcarraldo has an incredible scene that's filmed on a ship as it's moving helplessly along choppy rapids. One of three ships that Herzog uh, purchased for the movie. Um, there's some incredible details about the ships in the film. Uh, the second one that he got was actually commissioned in 1906. 
Um, so it's a very old boat, uh, pretty rickety. And it's amazing because these, you know, these ships are characters in the film. And like the Fitzcarraldo character has to have these like crummy ships that aren't up to the task. So of course <laughs> the, the, the ships that Herzog acquired for the film also had to be, uh, they also had to fit that description. So when you see these, I mean, they are like these rusted rickety, you know, like hunks of junk. And this is what he took into the jungle. And that scene on the rapids, like you, you see in burden of dreams that it was very real. It was Herzog and Kinski and the cinematographer and like a sound man on this ship as it's going through the rapids. And that sequence ends with Herzog and Kinski, like helping to bandage, like the cameraman's like bloody hand as, <laughs> as he sustained an injury from, from doing this scene again. I mean, you know, I love the scene. I love seeing it in the movie. <laughs> yeah. I couldn't do that on a soundstage. So I want to read just a passage from Pauline Kael's uh, review of burden of dreams where she, she likes burden of dreams, but she's very caustically anti Fitzcarraldo and anti Herzog. She writes, a man who has to do everything the hard way raises the suspicion that he's simply a hardhead. Herzog says things like, if I show a plastic ship going over a plastic mountain, it will be just a Hollywood movie, a cheap movie, and everyone will know it. Does Herzog actually go to movies? He seems to want only the torment of making them. No one could deny the persistence of tacky-looking pictures, but even 50 years ago, craftsmen in Hollywood and at UFA Studios in Germany were creating effects more than equal to Herzog's needs in Fitzcarraldo. It can't be that he's afraid of a plastic look. He knows better than that. Later on, she writes, In the documentary, Herzog acknowledges the injuries and fatalities that occurred during the making of his picture, but he regards them as the unavoidable results of his commitment to film. They're setbacks, obstacles to the profession of movie maker. A sainted liberal, he's deeply concerned about the Indians suffering over the centuries, and he assures us of his care not to contaminate them with Western culture. His tone is mournful as he rambles on about the terrible exploitation that has been killing them off, and it's bad enough to watch hundreds of them in the mud pulling out his damn steamboat without listening to him lament their tragic history. She writes, Herzog is an artist, but he's also a faker, the most dangerous kind, possibly, because he doesn't know how to use his fakery except to make himself seem more holy than other people. Anyway, I'm not sure. I'm not sure quite what to do with that. It's such an incredibly cynical reading. On you're saying she likes the documentary, but she doesn't like the film that it's capturing. Yeah, because like (laughs) she she kind of likes the documentary as an expose of this fraud, you know. Uh, But it's not an expose. That's such a bizarre interpretation. It's certainly a warts and all portrait of him, isn't it? Because like the documentary is remarkable because it ends with a scene of Herzog negotiating with the steamship engineer as he's like, okay, like what are what are the chances? of a fatality happening and the steamship engineer i don't know what percentage he gives them like i can't remember is it 10 percent? is it 30 percent some like not very high but like high enough number and herzog is kind of like well i don't know like like if if we don't have this like the whole the whole point of the movie is gone and and he's right to say that he's right that the whole point of the movie would be gone um, so I like I think it's possible to like a movie that has a scene like that, but not necessarily like Fitzcarraldo itself. Well, I'm interested in in this Pauline Kael uh, interpretation of the of the film because on my uh, on my you know rewatch of it, I actually think you know much of it anyway makes Herzog look pretty good, and you know it makes him look. I mean, Roger Ebert would certainly agree in his review. Yeah, I mean the film shows that he's he shows him to be pretty concerned with the you know about the disappearance of um, you know the local indigenous languages and cultures there's an incredible uh, remark he makes where he says that you know if we lose all the la- different languages and cultures and mysticisms and 
and myths and fables and all the rest of it. We're just going to have one universal culture like the American culture, mm-hmm. um, which is which is a pretty uh, r- remarkable and, and evocative statement, I think. Something Ebert often writes about in his writings on Herzog is he often quotes Herzog saying the need for society to have new images, to constantly be creating new images. And if we don't have new images, a society dies. It's living in its own sawdust. You well, know? that's that is basically like popular culture in 2021 isn't it everything's a goddamn prequel there's no new images like even though like ironically enough there's this you know the, i mean the technical uh, capacity to create images of any kind i mean it's not just you know it's not just like pulling a boat over a mountain i mean you can you can make a boat that's the size of a galaxy and you can pull it through seven more galaxies <laughs> if you want you know using a green screen and yet we don't have any new images do we everything is an origin story now there's no kind of future and as a culture we almost preclude the idea of new images i think and I think it's true that even in his lesser movies, Herzog always gives you an invigorating image that you take away with you forever. I'm never not thinking about Klaus Kinski surrounded by all those uh, topless warriors in Cobra Verde or Kinski on the raft in Aguirre or... The, the various scenes in, in uh, the, the lesser known one, uh, Heart of Glass, which has always been one of my favorites, where the plot is at the master glassmaker who sustained the economy of this local town for jet you know for generations he passes away and not, no one can master his technique and the society of the town almost as if a horrible curse has been inflicted upon it just kind of descends into madness mm-hmm. uh, yielding some really incredible and unforgettable images or even a lesser film I don't know if you've ever seen or heard of Invincible from the early 2000s but it has a scene where the main character dreams himself on this rocky coastline just surrounded by lobsters everywhere lobsters as far as the eye can see crawling around everywhere and I don't necessarily think it's one of Herzog's best images but like you've never seen anything like it you know he's constantly giving you something new or did you ever see his documentary encounters at the end of the world about yeah many times yeah yeah, wonderful film about the south pole and i mean i think about well i think about the penguin running into the into oblivion and i think about those under the ice scenes it looks like another planet almost it it does and the way herzog in his narration describes it as looking at the frozen sky is such a beautiful and poetic turn of phrase so yes, I, I I do love him, and I and I and I and I do think he... we, you and I have in fact uh, been to several uh, Werner Herzog premieres. Yes, you know I I met the man once uh, at a roundtable interview for Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. And what what did you ask him? God, I can't entirely remember what I asked him, but but I remember at one point here I am twenty one years old, twenty years old, and I remember uh, at one point saying that movie i kind of took the cliches of film noir and put them into high gear and herzog said it is more like overdrive (laughs) so i remember him and i sharing that i asked a few questions to him and and it was one of those things where like he walks in the room and i kind of like couldn't believe it it's as if captain ahab walked into the room you know (laughs) as if you're in the room with a with a great literary hero like how do we occupy the same space but you know maybe this is the idolatry that lets people get away with all sorts of things i don't know let me uh, uh ask you about working with klaus kinski he he doesn't look like an easygoing guy well um let me put it this way uh, marlon brando has a reputation as being a difficult actor but i think um his in comparison to kinski is probably like only like a docile extra oh. on a set Burden of Dreams is probably best known, and in fact is probably known by people who don't even know about the movie for this 
very famous scene of Herzog sitting in the jungle and just riffing about like, you know, Herzog has been on this movie for a long time at this point. He's been in the jungle for a while and he's got a certain amount of jungle fever. It's it's clear. And he's ranting about, you know, the jungle being this place of overwhelming collective murder. You know, Kinski thinks it is very erotical. I do not see erotic elements. I see a land in pain. Well, it occurred to me, uh, I think for the first time uh, revisiting the film, you know, I feel like this scene has been sort of, you know, all the sort of all, all the potential meaning has sort of been pounded out of it by its, you know, by its memification. And, you know, Herzog himself has really become a meme in recent years. I, I do feel like maybe as a result of this film, he has adopted a more avuncular persona in the decades since, you know, kind of kidding his reputation. I, I'm actually OK with uh, that kind of stuff, as long as it acknowledges that, like, Werner Herzog knows he's funny, which yeah. I feel like some of it actually doesn't. Mm -hmm. Oh, he, no, he's obviously very savvy. Yeah, he knows exactly what he's doing, and he is he is very funny. But it occurred to me revisiting this scene that, you know, one potential reading of it is that he's actually meaning to convey his kind of personal metaphysics here and his personal creative vision. He's actually trying to tell us something about what would lead someone to produce a film like this. You know, it's a kind of vision of chaos. He says there's no real harmony as we've conceived it. You know, there's just kind of, you know, murder and death and all the rest of it. But then he but then he qualifies that by saying, I love the jungle. And then he qualifies that by saying that he loves it against his better judgment. <laughs> I feel like that statement, you know, though it's it's kind of cryptic and ambiguous, does kind of seem like a statement about his overall, you know, creative vision and the one that he, you know, so ruthlessly pursued in so many of his films. It's an unfinished country. It's still prehistorical. The only thing that is lacking is, is the dinosaurs here. It's like a curse weighing on an entire landscape. And whoever goes too deep into this has his share of that curse. So we are cursed with what we are doing here. It's a land that God, if he exists, has, has created in anger. It's the only land where, where creation is unfinished yet. Taking a close look at, at what's around us, there, there is some sort of a harmony. It is the harmony of overwhelming and collective murder. And we, in comparison to the articulate vileness and baseness and obscenity of all this jungle, uh, we, in comparison to that enormous articulation, we only sound and look like badly pronounced and half-finished sentences out of a stupid suburban novel, a cheap novel. And we have to become humble in front of this overwhelming misery and overwhelming fornication, overwhelming growth and overwhelming lack of order. Even the, the stars up here in the, in the sky look like a mess. There is no harmony in the universe. We have to get acquainted to this idea that there is no real harmony as we have conceived it. But when I say this, I say this all full of admiration for the jungle. It is not that I hate it. I love it. I love it very much. But I love it against my better judgment.